what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to episode three of Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm Neil White, and along with me, as always, is my brother, David White. Thanks for joining me again, David. Always glad to be here, Neil. Canada Day is over. Uh, the 4th of July is over, but the good news for me, David, it's all long gone, but uh, we're actually having fireworks here in Timmins tonight. Uh, they had bad weather on the actual Canada Day, so they've, they've saved the fireworks, so I get a bonus fireworks display. Isn't that awesome? Bonus fireworks display. We're always up for more explosions on Oh Brother, When Art Thou? <laughs> Speaking of which, I guess it's uh, let's get into some explosions here and uh, talk about our main subject today. Oh, brother, when art thou? Neil, it's the 12th of November, 1838, and huddled in a boat bobbing on the St. Lawrence River, a little more than 150 American volunteers are waiting for their turn to invade Canada. Wait, they're invading Canada? You said it was 1838? 1838, that's right. Why were American volunteers invading Canada in 1838? What's going on in the country at that time? Well, we're going to have to start back in 1837. So in 1837 in England... The old king dies, and Queen Victoria comes to the throne. That may not sound like it's immediately important to Canadians, but at this time, Canada's still part of the British Empire, so it's a big deal politically. And it has... So Canada has a new queen. We have a new queen, and there's a surprising effect of that. Which is? In uh, Lower Canada, what we would call Quebec, a group of... Uh, French patriots with long-standing grievances over how they've been treated by the British Empire start a rebellion, uh, partially because they think that the British, with a new queen, might be weak or disorganized and not ready to react to them. But whatever their direct motivation, they rise up. And this has a knock-on effect. In Upper Canada, what we call Ontario... William Lyon Mackenzie, a local politician uh, with his own grievances against the British Empire and a lack of democracy for people living in Canada, decides that with the British forces in Canada distracted by this rebellion in Lower Canada, now is the time for him to rise up and start his own rebellion with its own goals in Ontario. So the Canadian British subjects are actually rebelling against Britain here in Canada. They are, yes, in 1837. Right, and it's led by uh, William Lyon Mackenzie. Is he related to the Prime Minister later on, William Lyon Mackenzie King? He's Mackenzie King's grandfather, as it happens, on the maternal side. Wow. Yeah, little coincidence, small world. <laughs> small world indeed, I guess. Uh, so... He, is his his rebellions obviously not successful because we know Canada doesn't become a country till 1867. Indeed, his rebellion doesn't last very long on Canadian soil. Ah, uh, he gathers his forces at Montgomery's Tavern in Toronto. Okay, so for those of you listening at home, you you 
won't even realize this, but David just accidentally hung up on me. We just had to restart this here because David hung up the phone on me. All right, David, you're back. I'm back. Okay, try, try not to hang up the phone again. I will try my very best. William Lyon McKenzie's rebellion wasn't successful? It wasn't successful. He rallies his uh, supporters at Montgomery's Tavern in York, what would become Toronto, which even then was the capital of the province. But once he rallies them there, it quickly becomes obvious that there's more loyalists uh, rallying to defend the capital than supporters of Mackenzie's rebellion rallying to seize it. And after a brief skirmish at Montgomery's Tavern, his men flee, and Mackenzie himself flees uh, across the border to America, allegedly in woman's clothing. Fights outside a tavern. It's a proud Canadian history, I suppose. And Mackenzie actually ends up fleeing the country dressed as a woman. Ah, uh, allegedly. Well, we won't besmirch his good name uh, too badly here. So he goes to the States, and uh, is he still fighting for this cause of Canadian freedom? He absolutely is. He is still searching for a chance to uh, bring democracy to Canada. And as part of this, he gets involved with a large variety of Americans who are also supportive of the idea of Canada becoming a democracy and who are perhaps more willing at this point in history to be involved in trying to make that happen than they would be in our uh, our day. Uh, you've got to remember, this is only two years after the Battle of the Alamo, where an American sitting congressman went and fought against Mexican for forces in Texas because of how they were treating their citizens there. So the idea of leading a force of freedom fighters into Canada is not necessarily foreign to the people of upstate New York who Mackenzie is reaching out to looking for volunteers to rise up with. And Americans aren't that far removed from their own um, fight against the British for independence. So that for them, this is uh, maybe looking like a, con a continuation of the American War of Independence. Exactly. And so they form a secret society known as the Hunter's Lodges, backed by Mackenzie and intending to back him. And they start to organize over the winter of 1837, looking for a chance to land in Canada, rally the rebels that they hope are waiting to join the cause, and overthrow the British government in Canada. So the Hunter's Lodges are American... Uh putting together this this fighting force to invade Canada and free Canada from British rule, who are they recruiting? Mostly they're recruiting local American young men who are the sons or grandsons of men who fought in the Revolution or the War of 1812 who feel like they've got something to prove and who believe firmly in democracy and in bringing freedom to the peoples of the world and who are ready to join up. But that's not necessarily everybody who joins. 
One interesting character who will become important a little bit later on is Bill Johnston. He's actually a dual citizen. He's lived in both America and Canada at this point, but he fled Canada in, during the War of 1812 when he was accused of being a traitor working for the Americans. And he's still unhappy with the British government as to how he was treated, and certainly he wasn't treated very well. Was he working for the Americans during the War of 1812? Not according to his own account, and there certainly isn't any evidence uh, that he was. But obviously now he's working with the Americans, and he's very eager to be a part of an uprising against what he views as a dictatorial government that stole everything from him. He's important because he owns a boat. The geography of the border region becomes important at this point. All right, so this is the region between Ontario and uh, upstate New York, basically? Exactly, yes. And it's separated by the St. Lawrence River. The St. Lawrence River and, to a lesser extent, Lake, Lake Ontario, yes. So any Americans coming across would obviously need a boat. That's a harder thing for them to organize than you would think. Why is that? Initially, uh, Mackenzie just hires a local American steamer, the Caroline, and crosses over to a river in the St. Lawrence River uh, called Navy Island and raises the flag of his new Republic of Canada there. And things probably seem to be going pretty well at this point for him. He's seized an island, and he doesn't have any immediate problems. And indeed, he manages to get his hand on an artillery piece and fire a few shots across the river onto Canadian soil as a symbolic gesture. So Mackenzie's shooting artillery... Uh, towards the Canadians, uh, presumably not doing too much damage, but I'd imagine the British didn't take it very well nonetheless. No, they're very unhappy. And a few of them decide that they're going to cross the river themselves, seize the Caroline, this boat that has been supporting uh, Mackenzie and his troops, and destroy it. So they light it on fire and push it eventually over Niagara Falls. That must have been quite a sight, seeing the Caroline go over Niagara Falls lit on fire. Well, unfortunately, uh, it appears that the Caroline had already burnt down to the waterline before it went over the falls, so there wouldn't have been much to see. But luckily, local woodcut artists working for the newspapers of the time cheerfully added very dramatic renditions of this uh, image, sometimes including little additional items like men fighting, sword fighting in the riggings, uh, just to make sure that there was the drama that reality didn't offer. So I guess the woodcutters were basically early Hollywood. Exactly. Okay, so after the Carolines burnt and sent over Niagara Falls, uh, what's plan B here for the Americans and uh, William Lyon Mackenzie? Well, plan B resembles plan A in its outline. They still want to cross and raise their flag somewhere, rally local supporters, and march against the British. But it gets very hard to do because no one wants to give them any boats for fear that if they do, their boats will be 
lit on fire and sent over the falls like the Caroline was, uh, which for a boat owner on the American side, obviously would not be a great thing to have happen to your livelihood. One of the few exceptions to this is Bill Johnston, who's committed to the cause and willing to take some risks. He ends up raiding across the river. They begin calling him the Pirate King of the Thousand Islands because he's crossing the river and seizing British ships and stealing what he can as part of his uh, work for the cause. And indeed, he becomes one of the most wanted people along uh, the river at this point. And the British are hunting him. And that's when another interesting character enters our story. Kate Johnston is the daughter of Bill Johnston. And as the British are hunting him, he refuses to go back to American soil initially and is living, hiding out on uh, these little islands, the Thousand Islands. And Kate Johnston ends up being in charge of bringing him food and generally keeping him supplied, which makes her a bit of a local legend in her own right for her ability to avoid and outwit the authorities who are hunting her. And at this point, even the American authorities who aren't hunting most of Mackenzie's supporters, who they view as having done nothing wrong, are a little bit nervous about Bill Johnston and his alleged piracy. And they're hunting for her too, but even with the police forces of both countries after her, she's evading them quite nicely, which leads to her picking up the same, well, almost the same nickname that her father had already had, the Pirate Queen of the Thousand Islands. Who knew there were pirate kings and queens on the St. Lawrence River? It's a beautiful area, the Thousand Islands. I'd recommend you go visit, but I maybe wouldn't recommend piracy. So does their piracy uh, help the American cause? Do they get the support they need? Well, to a certain extent, it does help to publicize it, but it's just not enough. They're, they're not rallying any Canadians on the Canadian side to their cause with what most Canadians at the time would just view as petty robbery. So the Americans begin to work harder on their whole crossing strategy. And there's several small attempts at this point, usually very small attempts, for small American bands to cross the St. Lawrence with the goal of seizing some portion of the Canadian shoreline. One of the most intriguing of those isn't intriguing for the American forces crossing. It's intriguing for the British forces defending. And why is that? The local British commander is a guy called Josiah Henson, the Reverend Josiah Henson, actually. And what's interesting about Mr. Henson is that he wasn't originally British or Canadian. He's an escaped slave who made his way, after escaping from slavery in the Deep South, had made his way to New York for a period of time where he became very famous supporting the abolitionist cause. So slavery is still legal at this time? Slavery is still legal in America at this time. And in point of fact, the Fugitive Slave Acts, the acts that allow escaped slaves to be brought back to the plantations that they escaped from, are being passed at this time. And that's why the Reverend Henson 
decides that he wants to live outside of America where he can't be captured by slave catchers and brought back to his former master. And therefore, he crosses the border and enters Canada. And then, once in Canada, when this whole revolution begins uh, with Mackenzie, he decides to fight against it, specifically because he's afraid that the extension of American-style politics into Canada will include the extension of American-style slavery. So this is an escaped slave. He's come to Canada, and now he's fighting for the British against the Canadian freedom fighters. Against the Canadian rebels, shall we say. Sure. One man's rebels, another man's freedom fighter, I suppose. Exactly. They both have a vision of what they consider freedom to be, whether it's democratic politics or personal liberty. But they're all willing to fight for it. And he commands a small company, mostly of black troops, in the 2nd Essex Regiment of the Canadian Militia. And they successfully fight off a very small American attack. And he writes about it in his autobiography. But these small American attacks quickly die out. There's simply no point crossing the rivers in groups of a dozen or less. Everyone in the Hunter's Lodges know if they want to make a real difference, if they really want to raise the Republic of Canada's flag above the Canadian shoreline, they're going to need to cross on a larger scale with a more impressive force. It would seem like that would be obvious. I mean, attacking the largest empire in the world with a dozen guys doesn't seem like such a great strategy for the, the Hunter's Lodge. No, it's a terrible strategy. But what you have to remember is that the Hunter's Lodges are not made up of experienced military uh, figures. They're made up of a group of random, usually local politicians leading local cronies, all of whom want to seize control. There's a number of men at this point who stand up and declare themselves to be generals for the Republic of Canada. And one of the ways to try and gain credibility initially is to try and lead a force across the border. But as that proves to be so embarrassingly ineffective, they sort of fade out over the early months of 1838, leading to a real concerted effort by the Hunter's Lodges to organize a larger force under perhaps a more impressive commander. Who do they recruit to be their new commander? Who do they recruit to be their new commander? So the guy they choose to be the general who will lead the force is a man named John Ward Burge, who's a local politician in New York, like many of their earlier leaders was. So to help him, he goes looking for somebody with some more military experience to serve as a commander, or to serve as a more practical military advisor. Unfortunately for him, the guy he chooses is a local uh, celebrity by the name of Nils von Schultz, who claims to have 
significant military experience leading a revolution in Poland against the Russian Empire who held Poland at this time. He also claims to be a Polish aristocrat. And unfortunately, he might not be quite what he seems to be. So Nils von Schultz, the now he's an aristocrat in upstate New York, claiming to have been a Polish freedom fighter and an aristocrat in Poland, but really he might just be a con man? Well, really he might just be a guy called Nils Gustav Ulrich, a peasant who was born in Finland, also a portion of the Russian Empire at this time, who moved around Europe looking to better himself, at some point started calling himself Vaughn, which was a indicator that you were an aristocrat, later picked up Von Schultz. Ah, then the claims of being a Polish aristocrat specifically start to come in. And then at some point he moves to America. And after that, we start to find references to him specifically being a freedom fighting aristocrat in Poland. It's hard to call him a con man when there's not a lot of evidence that that's exactly how he was raising his income, but certainly he was improving his position with these fabrications as to his past. So he's basically been fudging his resume to make himself sound better and become an aristocrat, which seems like not a bad idea until you end up getting recruited into a fighting force that's going to invade Canada. Well, that's what you or I might think, but Nils von Schultz actually seems very enthusiastic about the whole idea. He joins up, he's on the boats with the rest of them, he shows every signs of being enthusiastic about this whole command of this expedition and that might be lucky because general burge who was supposed to be in command is with them on the 12th of november when they're starting the embarkation at the docks onto the boats brought to them one of the boats that's present there is bill johnston's boat and he is, as I've already mentioned, perhaps the most enthusiastic naval commander that the hunters the, have. The pirate king of the St. Lawrence. And Nils gets onto his boat along with a large number of the troops. But Burge tries to get a local boat owner to get him across on a different boat. And unfortunately for General Burge, that local boat owner is not enthusiastic after the whole example of the Caroline, and he refuses to cross. So as the night passes and the boats cross the river, Nils von Schultz ends up being the most senior commander to have actually crossed the river from America to Canada. So Nils von Schultz after having fudged his resume, is now in charge of this American force that's landing in Canada to try and free it from the British Empire. How do the Brits react to this? 
the first they learn of it is when the local force at Prescott starts to hear that trouble is crossing. The local militia at captain at Prescott, to his credit, rushes to the docks to try and defend them. And he's going door to door trying to raise the local militia force, rouse them from their beds to hold the docks. And eventually, with a very small number of men, he goes to the docks simply because that's what he's got and opens fire on the boats. But this is perhaps a dozen guys, probably less. But it turns out to be just enough. The Americans, Nils von Schultz, Bill Johnston, and the rest, are very unhappy to be fired upon. They're nervous, it's dark, so they decide not to land on the docks at Prescott at all, but rather to run just a little ways downriver, and then beach their boats on a convenient beach that Bill Johnston knows of just outside the town. So the Americans have now landed in Upper Canada. They're leading this revolution, and they're assuming all the locals are going to rally to their side. What's their their strategy here? Well, they're looking for the locals to rally to their side. They want to seize a recognizable landmark and let the people come to them. And the first part of that strategy goes all right. They seize the local windmill just outside of Prescott, Ontario, which is a good, substantial stone building that's visible from a long distance around. And they start to fortify it, raise their flag, and hope that the Canadian people will come flocking to join them. Unfortunately, that's where things fall apart. The Canadian people don't come rushing to join them. Indeed, there's almost no record of any attempts by locals in the Prescott area to try and join them at all. And the militia captain initially, and later on more senior militia commanders as they arrive on the scene, gathering what forces they can, quickly surround the Americans in the windmill and start a siege. And of course, the Americans in the windmill are being led by Nils von Schultz, who doesn't actually have any military experience to lead a a counter siege here. No, he's got enthusiasm, but he perhaps doesn't know how to most effectively command a military force like the one he's leading. That doesn't sound good for the Americans. No, and indeed, this will not be a glorious tale for them. It takes almost a week for truly substantial British forces to arrive, but the Americans don't break out, refuse offers to surrender initially, and then, after some skirmishing, they're driven back into the windmill, and once the British finally manage to bring up enough artillery to start to really threaten the structural stability of the walls, the Americans and Nils von Schultz himself are forced to realize that there's no alternative for them but surrender. And at that point, he does finally admit defeat, raise the white flag, and he and his troops are marched off into British captivity. Well, there's the fireworks we promised you at the beginning of this episode as we have the Battle of the Windmill and the Americans getting pretty severely beat here by the British. Uh, So Nils von Schultz is captured, and, uh, and what do the British charge him with well there's certain complexity with the question of what you should charge a man who's invaded your country with generally we don't 
end up doing trials for soldiers, but in this case, the British charge him with a variety of offenses, ranging from conspiracy to commit murder all the way up to levying war on the British Empire. And Nils is in a pretty ugly place as far as legal defense knows and goes, and he knows it. I'd imagine if you're charged with waging war against the British Empire, you'd want a pretty good lawyer on your side. Indeed, he does, and therefore he goes looking to hire a local lawyer around Kingston, where he's being held at Fort Henry at this point. And as it happens, he finds a young lawyer, young up-and-comer who happens to be in town. You may have heard his name. He's called Sir John A. MacDonald. Just John A. MacDonald at this point, of course. John A. MacDonald, for our Canadian listeners, would be pretty familiar. He's the first Prime Minister of Canada. But of course, this is uh, quite a while before that, so... He's just a regular lawyer, I guess. He's just a young lawyer looking to build a practice. As it happens, he helped to defend some of the men charged with rebellion in 1837 and even got one or two of them off. Unfortunately for Nils von Schultz, this case is just a little bit harder. Uh-oh, so Sir Johnny MacDonald isn't successful in this defense. He does what he can, by all accounts. And the city of Kingston apparently is charmed by Nils von Schultz's courtly old-world manners, but it's simply not enough. Neither the legal knowledge nor the conman's charisma are enough to get Nils von Schultz off of this one. On the 8th of December, 1838, at Fort Henry in Kingston, Nils von Schultz is executed. What a life lived, though, from a, a peasant in what's now Finland, uh, making his way to America, taking on this aristocratic background, and then taking the lead in this force that invades Canada, fights against Britain, and is ultimately defended in a trial by the future Prime Minister of Canada. What a adventurous life for Nils von Schultz, and he probably made it sound even more adventurous than it was. Absolutely. He is an adventuresome man at a dramatic time. And indeed, a lot of the men and women who fought in the rebellion of 1838 would find it to be a defining moment. Bill Johnston, by the way, since I've mentioned him several times throughout this podcast, escapes after the Battle of the Windmill continues his raiding for a few more months. The American government decides that they need to more strictly enforce neutrality laws, given how many forces have been leaving their country to invade Canada. As part of their crackdown, they managed to capture Bill Johnston, but Kate Johnston, the pirate queen of the Thousand Islands, breaks him out of prison not once but twice. But in the end, it's all for naught. The Hunter's Lodge is finally disbanded, unsuccessful, and the history of Canada continues on, not as a republic, but still as a colony of the British Empire. And the rest, as they say, is history. Well, thanks for telling us this story, David, about a con man, a pirate king, an escaped slave, a future prime minister, a lot of 
uh, colorful characters in this one. Sometimes that's the way history goes. Uh, speaking of colorful characters, I think uh, we'll wrap up our episode as we always do with a quick game here. David, sound good? Sounds good to me. And if you've been listening, you know I always come up with very inventive names for our games. So this one's called American or Not. Pretty simple premise. I'm going to pitch you some famous Americans here, David, and you're going to try and guess whether they are actually, in fact, American. All right. Our first one is the first female Secretary of State of the United States, Madeleine Albright. Madame Albright. All right. Was she American? Was she American? I'm going to guess yes. She was not. She immigrated from Czechoslovakia in 1948. Okay, our next one, David. Some music history here. Eddie Van Halen, the co-founder of Van Halen. I'm going to say he was. Oh, wrong again. Eddie Van Halen was actually born in, well, a city I'm not going to try and pronounce, but it's in the Netherlands. Uh, Sorry, my Dutch isn't that good. And he immigrated to Pasadena, California in 1962. All right, David, got to get back on track here. The eighth president of the United States, Martin Van Buren. Was he American? Pretty confident you have to be American to become the president, so I'll say yes. Well, remember, in the early days of the United States of America, um, presidents weren't necessarily born in the U.S. because, of course, it wasn't a country until after the War of Independence. You going to stay with your answer? I always stay with my answer, Neil. (laughs) Smart choice. He was the first U.S. president who was not born a British subject. He was born December 5th, 1782, in the village of Kinderhook, New York. And uh, I happen to know that's your birthday as well, December 5th. Indeed it is. (laughs) Not quite there yet, so I won't wish you a happy birthday. This one is an interesting one. Was he American? Captain America. Captain America. Ah, oh man. I'm going to say yes, but probably not in at least four different variants of the comics universe. Yeah, I won't get into the expanded comics universe, but of course he's a fictional character. But Stephen Rogers was born in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Uh, So he is American. He was born, according to the comics lore, in 1920 to poor Irish immigrants. So he was a first generation American, Captain America. All right. And our last one, David, uh, this is actually a, a real person, not a comic book character. Uh, Joseph Pulitzer, the newspaper publisher and the founder of the very famous Pulitzer Prize. Was he American? I'll guess no, just to shake it up a little. (laughs) And you're right. He immigrated from Hungary to Boston in 1864 when he was 17 years old. So uh, that's our little game of American or not. Good job, David. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Oh Brother, When Art Thou? Thanks for listening and thanks for playing along with us. If you want to connect with us, please do. Our website is obrother.ca. If you want to send us an email, obrotherwhenartthou at outlook.com or on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, whenartthou is our handle, at whenartthou on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil White with David White. This has been Oh Brother, When Art Thou?